New Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we're going to examine the solid, most reputable evidence regarding UFO sightings, or sometimes now known as UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. My guest is Leslie Kane. She is an investigative journalist. She is uh, the author of Surviving Death, a journalist investigates evidence for the afterlife, about which we've done a previous interview. She is also the author of the best-selling book, UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. In addition, she has authored or co-authored books on uh, Burma's Revolution of the Spirit and Henry Hyde's Moral Universe. Once again, this is an Internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the Internet video. Welcome, Leslie. It's great to see you again. Hi, Jeff. It's great to be back with you again. We did a fabulous interview a few months ago on uh, survival after death and spirit materializations. Today we're going to look at a completely different topic, although I know there's some overlap, uh, not necessarily that we'll discuss today, but in the literature we're going to explore UFOs. And you approach the subject, I guess, as, as a hardcore investigative journalist, uh, looking at what the uh, leading authorities, especially people with government positions, are willing to say about it on the record. Yeah, that's right. I've been doing this for about 20 years now, actually. And that's exactly right. I mean, I know there's a lot more to this phenomenon than that, the component you just mentioned. And I know it's extremely complex. But my particular role in all of this is to be the journalist and is to get the information out to the people that are responsible for policy making and really uh, shifting the the bigger picture as to how people view the topic. And um, we've re- I think we've come a long way since I started. Things have really changed a lot. The uh, range of publicly expressed opinions about uh, UFOs is is just enormous. On the one hand, you have uh, very uh, important people in the scientific world saying uh, it's there's simply no evidence whatsoever of of anything extraordinary uh, going on. That all the reports can be explained away. And then you have people on the other end of the spectrum who say, oh, the U.S. government has had secret treaties with uh, alien entities going back to the 1940s, and we have a secret space program, and we actually have a base on Mars. So uh, the the kind of information you're collecting is really in between those two extremes. That's right, because those are two opposing extremes. You know, we, the one end, you've got the true believers, the people that will believe anything and all the conspiracy theories, and then on the other end, as you said, you have the people who just dismiss it no matter what evidence there is. I think a lot of those people don't look at the evidence, but nonetheless, there's a whole group of them, and, and it's getting harder and harder for them to do that, though. And what one really interesting development 
that I thought after, you know, I've done a series of stories with with a team of people for the New York Times. And the last one just came out a couple of weeks ago. And within three days of that article coming out, a Scientific American, two scientists published a piece in Scientific American stating that UFOs need to be studied by scientists. And uh, so to me, that and, and that was really one of the most important effects of that story is that it actually, the more that we can do to legitimize the topic, the more it gives permission to the status quo. And this is an example. Of, the scientists are sort of the last ones to come on board, but this article in Scientific American, I thought, was a real breakthrough because the scientific community was actually making that statement. In my own case, I, uh, uh, as, as we probably discussed before, I got a, a doctoral degree at Berkeley in parapsychology. But one of my faculty committee members was James Harder, who was a professor of uh, hydraulic engineering. He was also the research director for an organization, I think now defunct, but it was very active back in the 1970s, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization. So I do know that going back to my days in graduate school and probably a lot earlier, there were occasional scientists who who looked into this phenomenon and took it seriously, but things have accelerated greatly since then. Yeah, he testified, I think, in congressional hearings even in the late 60s. But James McDonald was a very famous scientist from the University of Arizona who took this on. You're right, there have been these heroic individuals, but they were always, there was always this larger contingent outside that, that looked down on them, that ridiculed them. And I think that the, the where we're getting to now is more of a broader acceptance of this, where maybe the broader scientific community can have a different attitude about it. One of the important points you make in your book is that uh, it appears as if it was official government policy going back, I think, to the Robertson panel in 1953 that uh, sightings of, of UFOs should be discredited by the government in, in order to avoid, I don't know, public uh, panic or public uh, undue excitement about it. Right, or even the concern was that the, because we were in the Cold War that the Russians would somehow take advantage of public interest in UFOs and they might stage some kind of an event or there you know, was all this all this concern about the Russian involvement. So yeah, there was a panel caused, pulled together by the CIA in 1953 and they actually created policy which they sent around to all the government agencies which involved infiltrating UFO groups. It involved getting the media to do all kinds of coverage in various arenas, such as advertising and documentaries, uh, which which actually kind of ridiculed or, or, you know, put down the topic and made it seem ridiculous. And it became policy behind the scenes to use ridicule as a major tool. And they actually stated that in black and white in this report. So, and, and to debunk it was another... Use ridicule and debunking is how they described it. And so it kind of subtly infiltrated itself into the culture and into the approach of the topic in Project Blue Book, which was the Air Force topic that studied this until 1970, was, was a manifestation of that. I mean, they were greatly impacted by that particular approach. And so it has become part of the culture to look at UFOs that way. But that's sort of the seed where it, where it all began was back in 1953. 
one has the impression these days that uh, there's a different policy in place that would seem as if the current policy is to slowly leak into the public information bit by bit that, uh, yes, these aerial phenomena are real, that there are uh, vehicles that we have been observing for decades, uh, a, a, a great different variety of vehicles, but one thing they have in common is maneuverability that far exceeds, uh, far exceeds anything uh, that uh, any known earthly organization has uh, yet produced. It's true, and this is becoming, I mean, I, I, it's interesting, Jeff, because um, my book came out 10 years ago, almost to the day. And so I was just reflecting, I was looking back through my book last night and just sort of reflecting on where things were at when I wrote it. And the points that I was trying to make in that book, the things I was asking for really, I think today have been, have been achieved. And they were, you know, we're, we've moved really along. So the, the points I was trying to make in my book were number one, that the phenomenon was real, which in those days, people didn't even guess that this things even existed. Number two, that the ridicule is completely inappropriate. Number three, that there's a national security component to it or an aviation safety issue. Number four, that government needs to be involved. And number five, that scientists need to be involved. Now, in those days, we didn't know that there was a government program like we know today. Um, we, knew, we knew that there probably were. It was obviously assumed that you know, people within the intelligence world could not just dismiss this out of hand. I mean, that seemed obvious. And there were lots of Freedom of, Event, Freedom of Information Act documents we had showing interest in this. But there was nothing that we actually knew about. So when you fast forward to where we are now, and I think it all began in 2017 with the resignation of Luis Elizondo from the official Department of Defense program and then our ability to report on that in the New York Times – Today, it's really not anymore a question of whether they're real. I mean, it's generally accepted that we have a real phenomenon. The, the ridicule factor is way down. It's very hard for people to get away with it now because the other issue that I brought up 10 years ago, government involvement. We now know that government involvement exists, that there has been a, a, a secret program within the Department of Defense since, since 2007. It was started off in the... Defense Intelligence Agency, but then moved under the bigger umbrella of the DOD. So that was a major revelation that government is involved. They take it seriously. They also call it a potential threat, which means they're dealing with the national security component, which was also a question I raised in my book. And now this very last piece, we have scientists starting to say, we need to study this. So I'm, I, I think it's quite amazing that the 10 years We've, we've really come a long way. I don't think the question of whether, like you described, these capabilities of the objects. And now we have videos of them. We have three authenticated Navy videos of the objects, uh, which was also a huge development that, you know, they came out in 2017. Um, it's not a question anymore of whether the objects are real. And we have government uh, Senate committees that are being briefed on them. There have been briefings that have gone on for a long time through the Department of Defense to all kinds of agencies and intelligence officials and government officials, and I've actually been given uh, actual briefing slides that were used by the program, which deal with the uh, 
potential crash retrieved objects. And this was the big leap we made in our last New York Times story. But um, I just wanted to sort of lay out the overall climate of how this object is seen now is really different than it was 10 years ago. And I, I think the turning point was in 2017. And then since then, a lot has happened in the last three years that have taken us somewhere we've never been before with respect to this issue. So it's pretty exciting. I suppose the, the major issue is threat assessment because uh, if these objects, or phenomenon, or vehicles. I don't know really quite how to characterize them. Uh, but if they were used uh, by uh, an enemy for the purpose of attacking uh, any government here on Earth, we would be almost defenseless against them. They seem to move so rapidly and change directions so quickly that uh, they're you know, they can dance circles around our most advanced aircraft. Uh, so uh, one would think if their intentions were hostile, we would be, uh, I don't want to use a vulgarity, but that's what comes to mind. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And given how long we've been seeing them, let's say it started in the 40s, but really, Jacques Vallée and others have done studies that go back hundreds of years. We seem to have been seeing these things. So um, you're absolutely right. If they, assumedly, they have the technology, whatever this thing is, has such sophisticated technology that they could do away with us in a moment, and they haven't. But so, but nonetheless, uh, anything that can operate in impunity within our airspace, within strict, restricted airspace that can have near misses with our Navy pilots, is it has to be considered a potential threat. Anything that's in the skies that we don't know what, you know, we don't know what it is, and it's demonstrating incredible capabilities, the only way the Department of Defense is going to deal with it is to see it as a potential threat. And the word potential is the important one. But nonetheless, when you don't know what it is, it has to be treated that way. And I think that's obviously the only way that the Department of Defense can study it. It has to look at it through that lens because its job is to protect us. It also gives the Senate Intelligence Committees a reason to be concerned about it. And to whatever extent individuals within the government might have other reasons to want to find out what these things are, or they might have had their own sightings or who knows what, having the umbrella of a potential threat is a is a way that they, it allows them to come forward and allows them to to request a report just like they did recently, and to have a reason to care, and to so um it, it works very well. I, I think that a lot of the people who have studied this thing for a long time probably don't consider it a serious threat. Um, you know, in in terms of the word meaning something that's going to attack us, I think anything that's unknown has a you know maybe has a threatening component to it, but, you know, it's not, I don't think it's a serious worry that all of a sudden they're going to attack us. And you're right, if this does belong to other countries, and that's one of the major concerns of the program within the Department of Defense, if this does belong to Russia or China or one of our adversaries, then we really are in trouble. And that's another reason that is a, a very out, upfront reason for committees and Department of Defense officials to be concerned about this because we we obviously 
have to find out what it is if it does belong to our adversaries. We have to catch up to them. They'd be way ahead of us. You know, Marco Rubio made the interesting comment, who's the uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee chair, when they about a month or two ago, that he actually hopes it's extraterrestrial rather than Russian or Chinese, because if it was Russian or Chinese, we'd really be in trouble. And I thought that was an interesting comment. I'm under the impression from your book and uh, the various reports that we've heard of for a long time that we're probably not talking about a single phenomena, uh, phenomenon, but, but multiple phenomena because uh, the shapes, the sizes the uh, uh, seem quite different. At least there are many different models. Some are triangular, some are shaped like cigars, some are saucer-shaped. It's true, Jeff. I mean, all through history, let's, let's just, if we again assume the history starts in the early 40s, there have been these various shapes, as you describe, um, and that's a real mystery. You know, what does it mean? We don't even know what these things are, where they're from, um, but there is a variety of shapes. But I think the behaviors, the technology that they exhibit is very much, is very similar regardless of the shape. You know, the ability to do things like hover in midair without making a sound or to just zoom off at the blink of an eye so fast that it almost disappears before your eyes. Uh, have tremendous speeds and maneuverability. I mean, all these characteristics seem to apply to, to the different shapes. But how we can explain the diversity of, of shapes and also, you know, there are things like light balls and there's small objects and massive objects, different sizes, different lights of different colors. I mean, it is, it's really hard to understand what it's, what's going on and why there would be that kind of diversity. And then there's the whole connection to consciousness, which is the cutting edge of all of this, which is not something I do in my professional work, but of course I'm very interested in it. The fact that sometimes people who encounter these objects will then have psychic abilities suddenly manifest in them that they didn't have before, or they'll be in, their mind is impacted in certain ways. And then there's physical effects on people, so there, it, it's a very big and complex subject. And uh, we, we have a lot to learn, a lot more to learn about it, obviously. And it may be multiple phenomena. The, the psychological side of it, the paranormal side of it, is, is of great interest to me. But I don't know for sure that uh, the degree to which that side of it is related to objects that are tracked on radar and are videotaped by jet fighter planes uh, that are trailing them. I know. How do you put them together? I mean, and, you know, I've taken the sort of easy path, or at least I've seen this as my job, is to stick with the physical manifestations of solid objects that, that are picked up on radar, that are seen by multiple witnesses, that can be photographed and that leave marks on the ground when they land, that kind of thing, and that involve military witnesses and very, very, very credible people. And that have a, you know, a case has to have enough, enough data associated with it, reliable data, to be able to rule out other possible explanations. So there aren't that many cases like that. Uh, and those are the ones that are really important. And as I wrote in my book, it's probably only 5 to 10% of all the cases and sightings we have boil down to something that extraordinary. But when you study those cases, I don't know how you can explain them. I mean, as anything that's in the possession of 
any you know, man that it's anything that's man made. I mean, it, it goes back decades and decades and decades, and people always say the same thing: the witnesses and the people who are studying them, that we don't have that kind of technology on this planet. And even today, our officials are saying that. So, what is it? What do you do with that? Of course, we don't know. And I, I think I don't think that there's a lot that's known about it. Quite honestly, I don't think that. There's been meetings with aliens and that there's all this knowledge that the government has that we don't have. I, I think there's probably – there are attempts to try to understand it that are that are classified, but uh, I don't think a lot – I think there's still a lot that nobody understands about these things. Now, I know that uh, in your book, in your acknowledgments, uh, you point out that many people associated with the uh, UFO literature were helpful to you. And uh, some of those people are individuals who espouse some of the more far-out conspiracy theories concerning UFOs. So I know you're acquainted with that, but at some point you decided that uh, even though you work with those people and undoubtedly have heard their theories uh, that, that they weren't um, ready for prime time. You're not about to uh, write about their uh, concerns in the New York Times. Right. I mean, the New York Times wouldn't accept it even if I wanted to. But back then, you know, I mean, I was my book was in a, a culmination of 10 years of work prior to the book. And so I really wanted to acknowledge people who may have helped me in various ways at the very beginning of the journey. And there were people who helped me and who nowadays I would not agree with what they're saying or how they approach it. But since they were helpful to me, I, you know, it was appropriate for me to acknowledge them. And I'm, I'm grateful for that help. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different viewpoints, but um, no, those are not viewpoints that I would adhere to today. I, there was a long learning process for me when I first got involved with this, and it takes anyone a long time to sort out the legitimate from the ill, you know, the legitimate stuff from the what's theoretical and what isn't. And there were various people that helped me, in, for instance, by providing many, many government documents for me. Let's say. Uh, somebody who I may not agree with how they interpret things, but they handed me a huge box of documents, so I'm grateful for that. Let's talk about some of those claims, um, at least briefly. For example, uh, some, it's been widely pop, uh, popularized going back now for well over a decade, maybe two, that uh, we actually have uh, these vehicles in our possession and have been reverse engineering them. Do you, do you find any credibility to that claim? Well, I mean, that is always one of the ones that I had trouble with, Jeff. But in our recent New York Times story, which came out July 23rd uh, and got a huge amount of attention, uh, we actually brought forward that possibility. And we have uh, very high-level sources who have told us that, in fact, there have been retrieved materials. Um, and that they are locked away in super secret programs, very, very highly classified, highly protected. Only a few people know about them, or at least are read into those programs. And these are sources that I have worked with for a long time and I really trust. And um, so it kind of got to the point, because all of this is an evolution, where my colleague Ralph Blumenthal, who wrote the piece with me, and I felt 
maybe we're ready now to take the step into the into asking that question. I don't think we could have done it before now. I think there's been a gradual building up to the possibility of having this happen, but uh this was probably the most uh let's say far out or whatever, the most risky story we've done in our series of pieces for the New York Times and the most difficult in terms of working with the editors because as you said it's such a, an extraordinary claim to make, and we can't prove it because we can't produce the materials. We can't show anybody a crashed saucer or anything like that. We have to rely on the authoritative word of people who we trust to know. And the other thing that I found really interesting was these briefing slides that I would, and I, we published one of them in the New York Times where it actually, these are, are briefings that are presented to, as I said, government and intelligence people that refer to, not only do they refer to off-world vehicles as, as a possibility for what these objects are, but they refer to the concern that foreign governments might get advances over us by studying technology that comes from the retrieval of crashed objects, what they call AAVs, Advanced Aerial Vehicles. And so it's written there in these briefings that have been going on for a long time. They're still going on. And the people who have provided the briefings and have written the briefings and others who have spoken to us off the record have verified that, yes, this is what they've been briefing authorities on. And they're classified briefings. So we only, we're on, we only have the tip of the iceberg that we're able to publish, which is just the fact that these people say this is real and that they are briefing officials about it. We can't go into any more details than that, but maybe the next step will be somehow we'll get a little more detail. You know, it's a, it's a gradual process, but yeah, so this has been one of the most fantastical claims, as you point out, and now it's sort of becoming a reality, which is quite amazing. Well, there are different ways you could view it. On, on the one hand, it might be that we actually have a, a working vehicle. Uh, I mean, I think the movie Independence Day, for example, portrays that. We have, we have captured one of those vehicles, and an uh, uh, American pilot actually pilots one in, in that movie. Uh, on the other hand, uh, back uh, in, in the day when I was a graduate sc student working with uh, Professor Harder, James Harder, he handed me at, at one time a piece of metal. And, and he said this is a piece of debris that was recovered from a location where one had landed, left marks on the ground, I think radioactivity on the ground, and uh, had taken off. And here was, you know, a piece of metal. Uh, and as I recall, he uh, to his knowledge, as a professional engineer, he didn't think it was a, a, an alloy that could be or was manufactured on Earth. Uh, I think in your, one of your articles, you quote Eric Davis, a physicist who says something similar. He's looked at material that uh, does not seem to have been manufactured on Earth, some rare metallic alloy of some sort. That's right. And, you know, we have, have heard this for a long time and there have been, there have been some that have brought forward, but they may not be a hundred percent definitive or there may be questions in the providence of the, of the material. But yes, you're absolutely right. There are materials that have been studied with properties that 
the scientists feel are very, very hard to explain. It might cost a billion dollars to make on Earth. There'd be no purpose to make them on Earth. There'd be no reason to spend the money to make them on Earth and then to throw the piece into the desert, right? So that's pretty pretty remarkable. Um, the problem is we don't have the scientific studies on those materials. We don't have the materials. We, you know, we're going to work more on trying to actually do some reporting on some specific materials like you're referring to, but it's very, very hard to get something definitive, um, and the reports tend to be classified. The lab studies tend to be classified if they are in the possession of the government, but it is something we want to we want to try to learn more about, um, and getting something definitive is very difficult. But still, extremely intriguing. Another claim that has been widely publicized uh, by Philip Corso, who was involved in uh, military work and military intelligence, who, who wrote a book in, in which he claimed that he was involved in transferring technology recovered in, in Roswell, as I recall, in 1947, and that all sorts of uh, U.S. developments, uh, uh, microchips and night vision and, and, and other things uh, came because alien technology had already been transferred to uh, American industries. Uh, I interviewed John Alexander, who, who felt that uh, by tracing the history of those particular developments, it was quite clear that uh, Corso couldn't have been correct because there weren't any dramatic improvements uh, that he claimed, that, that there's a slow history of these technologies having been developed. Have, have you looked into that claim? I mean, not in any detail, but I would tend to agree with John Alexander. I mean, obviously, you can go back and trace the development of any kind of technological thing that we have, like lasers or something like that. Uh, so, I mean, again, it's also something that if if there is a component of it that's true, we can't prove it. We don't have the documentation. We have the story of Philip Corso telling us this. But as a journalist, there's so many threads, there's so many interesting possible stories like that that are dead ends because even if they're intriguing or possibly true, there's no way as a journalist that I can document them and therefore I can't work with those kinds of things. So, you know, Philip Corso, um, I, I respect the man, but there's no way to know one way or the other as far as I see it. And I would doubt that everything he says is true, but I don't know. There are other people that know more about that than I do who may have known him and spoke to him, which I never did. So, but I, as a journalist, I tend to just not get too involved studying areas which I know are not going to lead to anything concrete that I can work with. I don't have the time to do that. So I don't, I haven't dug into that one, you know, as much as a lot of other people have. Well, it seems to me that, that your approach is very smart. Let's work with the facts that we can be certain of, or, or at least have a high confidence in them. And, and those facts include that there are uh, multiple uh, vehicles that have been observed, that they do appear to be vehicles, uh, and they uh, seem to express a certain amount of intelligence. Uh, 
and that they have capabilities beyond uh, anything uh, that we know about uh, that can be done on Earth, that, that, that some of the material associated with them appears not to be anything manufactured on this planet. So, so it would seem to me that the, the idea that these are of extraterrestrial origin is a, a hypothesis that uh, has a high probability. It's a very valid hypothesis. I would absolutely agree with you. And, you know, the all of those things you said are true. And what's really important now is the fact that the government is actually involved with studying them and is open about it, that the Navy has been open about the fact that these videos have made statements, that these videos are not – they are UFOs, and they're not explained. Uh, you know, it's like – and the, the – the uh, intelligence committees are now looking into this. So, so yeah, I mean, it's it's all of the facts we have, but now the fact that the status quo is taking it on is a huge leap forward. So, um, and the extraterrestrial hypothesis, I mean, it's not, it's, a, it's an hypothesis, and most officials will not say, oh, I think that's what it is, but... I think Mr. Elizondo, the former head of the program, has said he doesn't believe they're Russian. They're not Russian. They're not Chinese. Uh, he said it's possible we're not alone. He has made statements like that. He is one of the people who would be in a position to know uh, a lot more because he was head of the program for 10 years, or maybe it was seven years, actually, but he was involved for 10 and um, had access to all kinds of classified information that we don't have access to. So when you, that's why you have to listen to the people that have the clearances because they know a lot more than we know. So yes, it's a valid hypothesis, but it, way, it may be way more complicated than that, as we were alluding to earlier. And there may be a lot of different phenomena that are manifesting as UFOs, and there may be other dimensions involved. And you know, it's an open question. But certainly, it's not the fact that the technology is not man-made is a major point. It's a major revelation. And I think that's beca that's beginning to be accepted now as a legitimate fact. And, you know, that's, that's pretty important. Well, it does seem to me that we're at a point in terms of our science with uh, working black holes and wormholes and uh, quantum gravity and, uh, a, a deep understanding of the speed of light and the theory of relativity uh, that it's conceivable to me that given our existing science we might be able to figure out how these uh, devices operate and I, I would imagine that there are uh, theoretical uh, physicists and other scientists working on that exact problem to see uh, if if we don't already have the technology, as, as some suggest, uh, that we could develop it on our own, perhaps. Maybe we're at that point. Yeah, I mean, there are theoretical physicists who have done exactly what you said, have already theoretically figured out how it is conceivable, if you want to work with the extraterrestrial hypothesis, for a civilization way ahead of it, not even that far ahead. I think they made maybe even a few hundred years. I'm not sure. But a, a more advanced civilization uh, could, what they call bend space-time, could manipulate space-time in such a way 
that they could travel very quickly from one location to another. Because what the objection that a lot of people raise in the in the scientific world is how could they possibly trans you know get from there to here? The, the distances are so massive, and they're imagining not being able to travel any faster than the speed of light, right? So it would take how many years or eons, right? But if you can manipulate space-time and jump through, uh, you know, and I'm not a scientist, but there are there are people who have explained this to me in very simple terms that it's almost like taking a piece of paper and folding it and bending it together, and you can just zip on through. So I don't think it's difficult for physicists to describe the technology that would allow this pos- this to happen. And that's another very exciting development. And I've spoken to some of them myself, and uh, there's no question that they can explain it. So we have a a theoretical model for how how that component could work. I think a lot of what they're, you know, they want to really learn more about is the technology itself, obviously. What is it that allows this physical thing to, to to do what what they can theoretically understand it to be doing? And, um, to, you know, if they can, if they have a, an object that they've retrieved and that they, they they try to reverse engineer the technology, well, that's apparently what's happening. And uh, I don't think it's easy to to understand the technology from what I gather, but I think that's uh, obviously what's you know what would they would want to do if they did have these these objects, these crash objects, obviously. And then the other countries would want to do the same. Who's going to get it first? We now know that there are, are currently government programs looking into uh, these very questions that uh, you've raised. That's correct. I mean, there was. Uh, we know that there is a department within the, the a program within the Department of Defense. Uh, it was started in, in 2007 and within the Defense Intelligence Agency, and then it, it moved into the Under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence at the Department of Defense, and then. Uh, we didn't know about it until 2017 when Luis Elizondo, who headed the program, resigned. And that's when I first met him and was shown a lot of material about the program. I was shown the videos at a, at a meeting that I had with him and some of his colleagues. And that's what led to the first New York Times story that we did. But we exposed the fact that, yes, indeed, there is a government program. And the interesting thing is that that program even though Elizondo resigned, it continued. And there was some confusion for a while as to whether it did continue because the Department of Defense made a statement that it had shut down, but actually that was not correct. Uh, And we reported on that in the Times, and it has since been verified that the program did not shut down. And now it's called the um, UAP Task Force, the Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon or Phenomena Task Force, which is basically a new name for the program and is working very closely with the Office of Naval Intelligence. And this has been made public through the Senate Intelligence Committee, which has asked uh, for a report, which will also be made public uh, by the Department of Defense and other intelligence agencies. They're asking for a report to be put together that can be made public, which will release information. So, uh, and this is all, yeah. So is the government involved? Yes. And I'm sure it was, there were agencies, obviously, that were looking into this prior to 2007. Uh, we just didn't know about it. And what's significant now is that we know about it. And at least we know about some of it, which is this one particular program, and that there are government officials trying to uh, study it, 
recognize its importance and also to bring it more out into the public domain. So that's that's where we're at. Now, I am under the impression that uh, the programs that we now know about are not particularly large and well-funded programs. They're more like small study groups. Is, is that correct? I would say they're not large. I think that the new program has been funded. I'm not completely sure. I mean, funding is certainly going to happen. If they want, if the Senate Intelligence Committee, and, and they, this is part of their appropriations bill, wants this program to be putting together reports, um, I'm sure it's funded. They're actually mandating this program now. They're giving it a task. So that's going to change, but you're right. The original program had $22 million, which is not very much. And when the funding ran out for that program, the individuals kept working on it anyway, because as you say, it was a small group. They were all employees within the Department of Defense. They were closely linked to the Navy, and they would continue to work on this within their, you know, their other jobs that they had, and it just kept going. So um, underfunded and small, yes, but uh, hopefully that's going to change as, you know, as, as this gets more acknowledgement out there. And there, I'm sure there are other programs, as I said, that we don't know about in other agencies, or at least small groups of individuals who have taken it upon themselves to study this over the years, so without question. Now, in the meantime, there has been, for several decades, you know, civilian organizations like MUFON that have been, uh, and, and the, several others, Center for UFO Studies, and uh, uh, I, I don't know about other countries so much, but a couple of civilian organizations in the U.S., uh, what kind of um, confidence do you have in the work of those organizations? And the other one is the National UFO Reporting Center. I think that and MUFON, yeah. I mean, I think they're fantastic because they're, they provide a place for people with sightings to report their sightings, and they keep these great databases. And to the extent that they can go out and investigate cases, they do. So it, it makes a huge contribution. I mean, the, the Center for UFO Studies that was originally set up by J. Allen Hynek has done, you know, has these incredible archival files and case studies, and it's it's extremely valuable because we didn't have anybody else doing this. You know, the the government might, I mean, who knows what the agencies within government were investigating certain things off and on or whatever, but this was a consistent, interested group, and there were many. Uh, PhDs and scientists and government officials who became involved with these groups. So, yes, they're extremely important and they remain important. And especially since people who have sightings don't have anywhere else, they can't go to a government agency like they can in France, for instance. They have a government agency that's part of the equivalent of our NASA, part of their space program, and it's known to everybody, and people can report. Police officers can take cases there, pilots. In America, there hasn't been anything even for pilots and police officers to report to. So uh, they, they, some of them are just frustrated. They want somewhere to file a report, so they will go to one of these civilian groups, and they play a very important role. I remember with the O'Hare case in 2006, you know, there's an object hovering right over O'Hare Airport. None of those witnesses felt comfortable coming forward. A couple of them were desperate to file reports. They just felt it was so important. Nobody would listen to them, so they went to 
um, I think it, they went to a group called NARCAP and National UFO Reporting Center, some of these other groups, and they were able to file detailed reports. And for them, it was really important just for them individually to be able to do that and to be heard and recognized. And then the the, uh, the organizations get the data from them, so it's 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 really important. And I mean, they some of the investigators may be limited because they don't have the the reason I've always advocated for government to be involved is because they have the resources to do a, a level of investigation that a civilian group doesn't have, and they they can get access at the snap of their fingers to anything they want, any data they want, etc. And they have sophisticated equipment for analysis and access to labs and everything else. So it's another level of investigation that can be done, but nonetheless, uh, the civilian groups play a really important role, really important. In your book, you report on uh, observations of UFOs uh, by government officials in Belgium, in Peru, in uh, England, and in Iran, uh, as a matter of fact. Uh, do you think it's uh, possible that other countries uh, are ahead of us because they have a more active military program looking into these things? Um, I, I know that it's a worldwide phenomenon, and a lot of countries do look into it. But what I what's been suggested to me is that perhaps Russia is ahead of us on this. Russia is definitely involved in with all kinds of institutions. Uh, they have, you know, academic institutions and scientific bodies and so on that do study this. And, um, that's, I don't, I don't know really about that. I know that some other countries have government agencies. I, I spent a lot of time looking into the French agency and the one in Chile. And they did great case investigations, but they, you know, they'd investigate a case and they'd file it. And there wasn't a whole lot more they could do. Um, but in terms of, Advancements with technology, which is really what the cutting edge of this is, I think that I, it's possible that Russia is, a, is ahead of us. I mean, I can't say for sure. I can just sort of tell you things that have been suggested to be my sources who are involved. And so I think that's the main, if we were going to be concerned about an adversary, uh, you know, ahead, being ahead of us, that would be the country we would worry about. But, um, I think the smaller countries, do great work, but, you know, they have always wanted the United States to become more involved, and which was something I learned when I went around and spent a lot of time with these people and these agencies that they felt kind of stuck because without the United States taking the position that this needs to be studied on a global level by, by the scientists and the intelligence world cooperating on it, uh, they didn't feel like anything was ever going to move forward. The United States has to take the lead, and so that was – so they they couldn't do a whole lot except study cases, but at least they were open about it, and I also wrote a lot of my book about the different – how differently countries – other countries approach this topic as compared to the United States and how open they are about it, and they share their investigations with their citizens, and they are willing to acknowledge that they don't understand what this phenomenon is and that it exists. And it's interesting because 10 years ago I was writing in my book, that's a big deal. Look what these other countries do, right? Now we've done it ourselves. We have come to that point where we have acknowledged they're real and acknowledged we can't explain them. And that's what these other countries have been doing for a long time, way ahead of us. Brazil is another country that's been, you know, had 
major investigations into this. So we're kind of catching up, but if if we we might also have the ability to move the whole thing forward because I think other the other countries do look to America to take some kind of a lead on this. So it's a very exciting time right now for I think for the world in terms of progress being made on this topic and the huge leaps we've made in the last few years are astonishing, really. If you were to take the trajectory from uh, what you've witnessed since your book came out 10 years ago to where we are today and project it forward another 20, 30 years, what would you envision? Oh, boy, that's an interesting question, Jeff. I would like to envision these secret access programs that apparently possess physical objects to be opened up to the public. Uh, it's understandable to me that they may want to keep certain technological discoveries classified to keep them secure from other countries possessing them, but I think the fact that they these objects exist and that have been retrieved and that we have them is something that the world has a right to know. I mean, if these if one of these objects could be exposed to the world, that would be absolute proof of the reality of UFOs. So um, I think, you know, maybe something like that will happen where something really definitive will be will come out. Uh, we still don't have something. We're not there yet with something that definitive. Um, the other thing that might happen is some kind of an event that the phenomenon will provide for us, uh, that we are now in a better position to document than we were 20 years ago. Uh, you know, we didn't have a government agency that could run out and take care of things. We might not have had the sophisticated cameras that we have now, et cetera. So I think we need something to happen that will tip it to 100% knowledge that this is, which we some people feel we have already, but not to the extent that it's like a planetary event, right, where everybody gets it. So maybe within 20 to 30 years, something like that will happen. Or some kind of documents will be released that are now super classified that provide something that we haven't seen before. The, the wall we keep bouncing up against is the wall of the classified world. And unless people who own that world are willing to open the door to it a little bit you know we're we're going to continue to move slowly but you just don't know as we progress how that might change i can imagine a more large scale version of what i experienced back in december of 1970 when I did uh, a, a study with uh, Ted Owens, the PK man, he claimed to be in telepathic contact with entities who controlled UFOs. He said that he would cause an event to occur that would be seen by hundreds of people, would be photographed, and the photograph would be published on the front page of one of the local papers in the San Francisco Bay Area. All of that actually happened uh, within three days of him telling me that. Uh, in fact, even more, it was videotaped, and the videotape was broadcast on a local TV station in the San Francisco Bay Area. So uh, the the possibility of something like that happening on a larger scale uh, seems, to me, it seems uh, at least uh, a a potential we need to consider seriously. 
I agree. And I've, unfortunately, I've heard of many predictions of UFOs that are going to show up at certain times and places, and it doesn't happen. But, you know, maybe they're... There, maybe there is somebody who can call them in or somebody who has a pre, precognitive ability to predict their arrival and we can document it. But, uh, you know, obviously in your situation it happened. Well, let's hope it can happen again like that. It did happen, but I was on another UFO outing. It was very strange. Some people invited me into the desert uh, near 29 Palms and California in the Mojave Desert and said four UFOs were going to come and land and meet us at three in the morning. We're out in jeeps going across the desert. And I actually saw four lights slowly descending to the desert floor. My mouth dropped open. I could hardly believe it. Uh, it turned out, though, that uh, those were flares. We were next to a marine base, and they were out on maneuvers at night. And uh, <laughs> it's, even though it looked like it might have been a real UFO landing, it wasn't at all. Right. That must have been a disappointment. <laughs> there, But this happens a lot where people will – flares is one of the things that people – Sometimes people will film them and they'll claim they're UFOs when they're flares. I mean, there's so much uh, misunderstanding and confusion. Yeah, so this is the kind of thing that happens a lot where you're, you're told something's going to happen, but then it doesn't. So who knows? It's an elusive phenomenon, Jeff. It's not making itself known to the extent that we would like. Well, I, I've learned to be very patient. We have to be, don't we? We have to be, but, um, you know, we're going to keep pushing this forward as best we can, myself and many other people who are working on this. Leslie Kane, this has been a very informative conversation. I really appreciate uh, your hardcore uh, journalistic approach. I think uh, the information we've been giving out here is uh, substan substantive and reliable, uh, uh, which is very important in a field that's full of so much confusion. So, Leslie, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for having me, Jeff. And for those of you viewing, thank you for being with us.